From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Lou Ramirez Discerns. This is Zoom Room. A youth-produced podcast where we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. Kira Buckland is a voice actor whose work mainly includes characters in English-dubbed Japanese anime, cartoons, and video games. She has over 300 voice credits, including the anime television series JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and role-playing video game Genshin Impact. Born and raised in Alaska, Buckland studied Japanese at UAA. When she was a student at West High School, she founded Senshi Khan, an annual anime convention in Anchorage that still happens every year. On top of all that, she also founded The Voice Acting Club, an online community that aims to bring voice actors and content creators together. At Me producer and aspiring voice actor Jordan Kell spoke with Buckland about her career. She talks about the various projects she's lended her voice to, her Alaskan roots, and shares advice for people trying to get into the business. So I know you probably get asked this a lot, but just to set a base for uh, some of our audience members who might not know, why did you become a voice actor? Well, I became a voice actor most like the simple answer is because I realized that I love performing. And my original goal was that I wanted to be a singer in a rock band, you know, as like a teenager. And obviously, I kind of realized over the years that that was not a super realistic goal. And I kind of liked acting like I had taken some acting classes as like a kid or a teenager. And I was like, oh, like, this seems fun. But like, I, I wasn't really good at like, um, the physical movement part of acting. So, um, you know, I never really I think most people are like this, like, I never really thought growing up that people in cartoons do the voices. I mean, it's like, obviously, you know, on some level that there's a person doing it, but you just don't really think about that. And then so when I got more introduced to anime video games and things like that and people would talk about voice acting and that sort of thing I was like oh like this is a whole career field that I could do like I want to do that because it just kind of combined all the different things I love like performing vocally but without you know having to do the physicality of being on stage or being on camera all right and uh with that do you feel that here in the West, especially, that voice acting is becoming a more vital and more culturally um, bigger career path for a lot of young individuals? Well, yes and no. So um, there's so many people out there trying to do this career. So, you know, that's the hard part is that is extremely, extremely competitive. And it was still competitive when I was first getting in, but I feel like nothing near where it is now. You know, now, especially with the internet kind of breaking down barriers and stuff, you have just people from all over the world trying to get into this field and a lot of them who are very talented. And so it can be hard if there just isn't enough jobs to go around at the end of the day. But, you know, that being said, more there's more media than ever being produced because so much of life and everything is online now streaming services internet social media all that kind of stuff and so there's more avenues for content to be produced that needs to be voiced there's also things like indie games and you know people making their own youtube series and stuff like that there's like a lot of um circumstances where they might need voice acting and you know of course on the really um 
doom and gloom side, a lot of companies are trying to replace all that with just AI generated voices with the idea that, well, then we won't have to hire real people. And, you know, that's kind of depressing. But I think even as that technology improves, it's never going to fully replace the idea of authentic human emotions and human performance. Yeah, I've uh, been catching up to date on that as well through Twitter. And I, I do agree. I think it could be a nice tool, but it's never going to be a replacement or at least should not be used as such. Now to add on to that, do you feel that amateur voice actors today have easier access to tools and entries to the industry using phone microphones and things of the sort? Yes. I mean, I, I think there's it's definitely easier now in general in terms of kind of getting started um, because the biggest thing being um, a lot of online access to things like classes, because before people would sometimes have to fly out to LA if they wanted to attend a voice acting class or this or that. But now it's like there's so many classes done over Zoom, particularly like the pandemic was the big motivation behind like making that stuff accessible. But I mean, honestly, it, I think that always should have been accessible. And in terms of um, getting decent equipment, I mean, you know, obviously if you're working on professional high-end stuff, that you need to use remotely, then you're going to be spending thousands of dollars still. But if somebody's just doing hobbyist work, they might be able to get something at super entry level for like $100 or whatever. So, you know, I think there are things that people can get when starting out that, you know, they'll at least sound decent. Whereas um, when I was first starting, it was kind of, you know, people use like gaming headsets and things like that. It just sounded terrible. So, um, you know, I think it's like, higher quality equipment is accessible to people from home depending on how much they're willing to spend. Uh, of course. I appreciate that insight. And I know you touched on this a little bit in the beginning here. Uh, maybe you could go more in depth, but what's the industry like in California? And um, you mentioned you did move there specifically for voice work. Maybe you can go into detail about that. Yeah. Um, just that like a lot of the work is concentrated here. I mean, during like 2020 and 2021, we had this, I think it's kind of beautiful, this period where people were opening up nationwide or even worldwide to talent for projects as long as they had a great home setup because when studios had to close for a period of time, then a lot of work was being done remotely. And, you know, now I would say it's like 90% back in person, at least in the kind of work that I do. So, you know, it's a shame that there wasn't more of that leeway that could continue. But um, yeah, I mean, in general, it's like, it's very expensive to live here. So I always tell people, don't like do whatever you can in your current location, like do the stuff that does allow you to work remote, do all that. And then when you've hit a point where you're booking a lot of that stuff, but you're specifically being locked out to bigger opportunities because you don't live in LA or Dallas, depending on what you want to do, that's when you can start kind of formulating a plan and thinking, well, is this going to be financially feasible and all that sort of stuff? Because one of my big gripes about LA is it's just so expensive to live here. Yeah, I, I'd imagine so. I think that could be a big entry to barrier for a lot of those who would like to go from amateur to professional. Mm -hmm. You bring up a lot of go into studio for a lot of bigger projects. And do you feel as though your community at Voice Acting Club may help with more localized projects and uh, help with getting some at-home work uh, out there for individuals, as I am a member of the Voice Acting 
club discord and uh prevalent not prevalent on there but i definitely like to check out the work some of the free work some of the paid work so do you feel like you are helping allow those opportunities to work from home Yes, absolutely. Because um, one thing that's kind of like a nice silver lining is indie productions and just like independent content, content creators in general, a lot of times they can't afford to, you know, it's not like with these studios where they have a space and they want to use it. You know, a lot of like um, an indie team, for example, a lot of times they would have to rent a third party recording studio, which would cost them a lot of money. So for projects like that, it makes sense, especially if a lot of actors have good quality home setups to have that work continue to be remote. Um, so I think that with sites like the Voice Acting Club, it helps congregate some of those casting calls. And it also helps kind of set expectations for things. Like one project that our community did a few years back is the Indie Rate Guide, which helps provide some sort of pay standards and ranges because a lot of smaller creators were like, well, I can't really afford to pay like the the union acting rates and stuff like that, but I'm trying to budget for voice acting. Like what's realistic if I, you know, if I just have some people record from home and this and that. So we tried to create resources to help people feel more knowledgeable about that sort of thing. And I do feel like that is an amazing community you have put together. I definitely do take a lot of information from there and a lot of my own, um, my own questions I want answered, I do reach out there and uh, read into it, as I believe it is a great resource for amateur voice actors. And again, I, I would like to say thank you and thank you to the team who moderates and puts together the website and manages the Discord. It, it means a lot to uh, amateur voice actors such as myself. You. I'm so glad that you found the resource helpful. And yes, a huge thank you to the moderators who keep everything running from day to day because it can be a lot. <laughs> With your baseline understanding of Japanese, do you feel like it influences your career opportunities or maybe helps you get into dubbing work since you can understand the source material maybe a bit better than those who only speak English or any other language? I mean, I think it, it helps a little. You know, I wouldn't say like, oh, it's this huge advantage necessarily. But I think even understanding like the bare bones basics of a source language can just kind of help. Because even though when you audition for something or you record for something, it's already been translated into English and you're looking at the English script, it can just help provide that extra layer of intent in the line and just to kind of know you know, a little bit more of how that line was being delivered in the original language. Um, I also do a lot of projects in Chinese and I don't really, you know, I try to teach myself like a few bare basics, but like I, for all intents and purposes, I don't really know any Chinese. So I do feel a little bit more lost sometimes when recording on those games because I'm like, well, I have no idea what they're saying in the original. I mean, even though the translation is right in front of me, obviously it's kind of you know, I'm just listening for tone, basically, at that point. Whereas um, if I do know a bit of the source language, I feel like I can also kind of listen for emotions and stuff as well. Yeah, you know, that makes sense. Uh, you mentioned earlier you did some dubbing. And do you feel like, do you prefer original voice work or dubbing? I like them both in their own ways. Um 
I do think dubbing can be very fun and creatively fulfilling. Um, there's something nice, too, about being able to see exactly what's going on in the scene visually. Um, I feel like I'm a very visual person when it comes to, like, coming up with voices and line deliveries and stuff. So when I can see exactly what's happening, what the character's expression is and all that, it it just kind of comes naturally, especially when I'm hearing how the actor in the original language delivered that line, which, you know, we pretty much always preview that for dubbing. So, you know, it is kind of nice having that framework. But the downside is that you are so restricted in performance because everything has to match what's already animated. So the English line will be adapted to fit the timing generally, but, you know, it is kind of a trial and error because, and you get better at it as you get more experience, but it's kind of like, okay, that was a great read, but we need you to go a little slower. We need you to speed up a little because, you know, ultimately it's got to fit what's in the mouth. So um, that can be a challenge creatively for sure because you don't get to play with pacing or anything like that. Yeah, and uh, to tag on to that question, some people might not know, um, but when it comes to original voices, does the animation come first or the voice work? For like an original cartoon, I believe usually they do the voice work first. Um, I think there's some cases where they might have like scratch dialogue recorded by like the team members and then people kind of dub over it. But um, I I haven't done a lot of like original animation. Most of my work where I didn't have to like heavily time something to the original was in video games, which is a little different because usually in a video game, if they have like cut scenes with mouths then we have to dub to that unless it's like a a game that's made over here and they have like a a facial capture or motion capture actor do that which is a whole different thing I've never done that but um yeah like I mean I don't know I'm just I'm so used to like having to match what's already there what level of voice training is required or recommended to start getting roles, if any at all? I presume that you can just jump straight into it, but do you feel that having a demo tape would certainly help um, regarding either indie or professional? I think acting training is always a good idea. You hear about some people who are like, oh, I've never taken a class in my life, and they, you know, they have this natural instinct for how to get into a character or whatever, but that's not the norm, and... For almost everybody on the planet who wants to be an actor, training is always going to be helpful. It does not even need to be a voice-specific class. I tell people, like, if you're in school, even if you can do, like, school or community theater or anything that just teaches you how to break down a character, like, how to get into a character's head and perform emotions and lines authentically without sounding like you're reading off a page. And, you know, you can do self-study, you can look at resources online, but... I do think having some sort of formal training is always going to be a benefit. Um, you know, it's generally speaking, if you audition for a job or something, it's not like they're going to ask, like, what's your training or whatever, but it will help your skill as an actor to be able to do this stuff. Because one of the things that people don't always realize about voice acting is that in the sessions, most of the time you are cold reading. So if you go in for a video game, you don't get to study the script beforehand, like it's a play or something. You just go in, sometimes you don't even know what you're working on until you get there. And they say like, okay, like, you know, the director will give you a little backstory about your character and they'll give you the script and you just kind of have to go. So all those things like analyzing and breaking down the character, you kind of have to do that in a split second. So having 
acting training where you do those exercises where you go through and analyze the character's motivations and intent, that's good to do in a training situation because you're not going to have the time to do that in the booth. And have you taken maybe any formal infor informal training, maybe such as a semester or two of high school theater class, or did most of it come from experience? Yeah. Um, so the, you know, I took like a few acting classes when I was younger. And then later when I started getting into the industry and moved to LA, I took a lot more voiceover specific classes. Um, I'd like to be able to take some more because even if you're already a working pro, you can always like learn new things and stuff. So um, I, I just haven't had the time with my work schedule. So nowadays, I like to say most of my training is on the job, if you will. But um, the person who really gave like a lot of... Um, I don't know, just a lot of insight to kind of how I approach a character and really made me learn to do that was um, my college theater teacher at UAA. So, yeah, I still credit her for uh, being able to, like, teach me how to get into the mind of a character. All right. And uh, speaking of getting into the minds of characters, I've reviewed a few of your podcasts and some of your interviews, and you mentioned that um, in the past, you like to do male character roles. So are there any male character roles you may be interested in voicing in the future from projects you've been reading up on or uh, any manga you've been reading? Um, I'm not really sure of upcoming characters because I unfortunately don't have the time to play a lot of new media or, or read or watch stuff. I mean, I just play Genshin Impact every day, to be honest. But um, I don't know, maybe like voicing a boy in Genshin would be fun. Do you ever read manga or look at game game comps, concepts, my bad, and think about a certain character you would want to voice in the future? This kind of tags onto the past one, but I know you've been reading the new part nine of uh, JoJo. So is there any characters you've seen in there maybe you click with or would want to voice on or maybe in Genshin Impact uh, when they release new sections of the world? Do you feel like you would like to voice some characters in Genshin? Well, um... For JoJo, I feel like because I'm already a Joestar, I think realistically I couldn't be any other named character in the series at this point, which is totally fine with me because, you know, I'm all for like, okay, another actor can get their opportunity now or what have you. Because um, that was like my biggest dream. Like that was the role I got attached to was I wanted to be Jolene Cujo. And now that that happened, I feel very grateful. And I, in general, I try, you know, I know JoJo was... <laughs> a big exception, but I try not to get too attached to stuff because most of the time we may not even see the audition for something because there's so many factors that go into whether we get to audition for a project or role or, um, you know, or a lot of times we do get to audition and we don't book it. So, you know, yes, I booked my dream role of Jolene Cujo, but there were so many characters and projects in the past where I'm like, oh, I really want to book this. And I feel like I do a great audition and give it my best. And then it goes to someone else. But, you know, on the flip side, and a lot of other actors feel the same, when I watch or listen to like who they picked, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That person was a better fit for this particular role than I would have been, even if I did a great audition or whatever. And so, you know, part of being a professional actor is just learning to kind of accept that, you know, I, I say it's not really rejection. It's just the fact that you, you're not going to get picked for most of the roles that you audition for because, you know, it's competitive and lots of people are trying out for it. But, um, 
Yeah, in terms of, I mean, I love my existing Genshin character. Like, I feel like I got the character that was right for me, so I don't want to be too greedy and be like, I want to play another character. But, you know, I suppose if I did play another one, I would want it to be somebody that's very different from Shinobu in voice and personality, so they can be very distinct. Like, you know, like I said, maybe a young boy or like a, you know, a more mature type of character, like um, kind of like Shenha or Ningguang or Gaimiko were... Um, you know, just something that's like really different from Shinobu, I guess, so that they can be very distinct characters and I could have them both on my team. <laughs> yeah. Um, and for those who may not know out there, Genshin is a popular anime video game. And well, obviously you play some of the media you voice in, but do you feel like watching or playing in any of the media you're, you partake in affects your enjoyment of it? I mean... You're never going to, like, be able to separate the fact that, like, you played a certain character that it's your... I think, you know, some people, especially when they're newer, they may feel really self-conscious or embarrassed about their performance. And I know there's some actors who are like, oh, I can't watch or play anything I'm in because I'm going to, like, you know, scrutinize and overanalyze every performance I gave. And I totally get that, too. But, um... If it's something, you know, obviously I work on a lot of projects. I don't have the time to watch or play everything by any means. But if it's something that I'm personally interested in, maybe something I would have checked out anyway, then, um, you know, that's when I play it. Also, because I started Twitch streaming last year, then that kind of gives me another excuse because it's like, oh, I can stream it. So I feel less bad about, you know, sitting around and playing a game. But I mostly just stream Genshin Impact. And when you do stream and you may have some insider knowledge because you are playing the character and you may get to read ahead, do you find it maybe hard to contain your excitement or to not share anything with your audience? Or do you find that it's pretty easy and simple to keep that barred away? I think it's pretty, I mean, of course, there's certain things that it's like we always wish that we could share. Like, for example, when I found out that we were going to be dubbing the Near Automata anime in English, it's like, I wish I could share because so many people at conventions or on stream would be like, do you know if there's going to be an English version? And you just have to kind of play it off like, I don't know. I hope so. We'll see. Um, but I mean, I think for most people, it's like obviously the threat of getting fired or like not having a job again it would overweigh um any potential desire to, to leak something so we're i'd say we're all trained to be pretty careful about that kind of stuff yeah um and speaking of conventions and such uh if you wouldn't mind uh describing SenshiCon for the audience before i ask this one question you know as the proprietor and founder of SenshiCon, i think it's only you give it its fair due Yes, so SenshiCon is Alaska's first ever anime convention, which has been running since 2005 at this point, and I actually was the founder of SenshiCon back in the day. I have not been, you know, involved in any sort of staffing capacity or anything like that in years, and it's, you know, run by other lovely people now, but um, yeah, it's, it kind of, the goal was just that at the time, Alaska didn't have any places for, like, nerds to gather outside of high school anime club, which I was president of at the time. So it just made sense that we start a convention. And I didn't, I'd never been to a convention I, at the time. I had just read about them on the internet. So it was a lot of like, um, I don't know. It says we, we have a costume contest and we do this and we have like anime playing. <laughs> this is very trial and error. Yeah. So would you be willing to maybe go in depth and describe Anchorage's for SenshiCon and, uh, 
Do you have any opinions on its growth in the recent years, if you've been keeping tabs? So uh, the very first one, because it was when I was a senior in high school and we did it as an anime club project, I basically went to the principal's office and begged them to let us use the cafeteria at my high school. And I was like, can we just have this, you know, as an after school event? I think it was on a Friday. And we ran it from like, I don't know, five to nine or something like that. Like it was a short event and admission, I think was only like $5 or maybe it was $6, but they got a dollar off if they came in costume or, you know, something like that. And we encouraged everybody to dress up as their favorite anime characters. And, you know, this was a long time ago, like, Oh, it's weird to think this is like almost 20 years ago at this point. But, um, you know, this was now it's like so easy to get relatively high quality mass produced costumes and wigs online. But back then it was kind of like you had to go to the thrift store and you had to like piece stuff together and maybe you had to get like a crappy party store wig or you had to, you know, I feel like it was um, cosplay was not as accessible in terms of having stuff that looked amazing but it was very creative because it did force you to kind of like source things from different places and see you know what you could do to put this outfit together that may have not been 100% accurate but there was a lot of love behind it so we did have a lot of people dress up and um I, I mean I think there were about I don't know if there were like 300 people or something it was you know small but still a decent turnout for something like that and we kind of collaborated with another high school who did the video game area and um we just had like stage events costume contests um all that sort of stuff and then of course now it's just grown and grown and grown we eventually moved to uaa the following year and we held it there for a few years and then later um after i was no longer really working there um they moved to Egan Center and now they're at Denina. So it's definitely grown a lot. And, you know, that's helped because the eventual leadership that took over had a lot of like goals and visions specifically for how to grow the convention, make it like a, a well-respected mainstay convention. Yeah. And uh, do you think you'd ever be interested in maybe doing a victory lap and coming up to maybe have a panel at SunshiCon or come as an announcer, or just uh, show love to, like this uh, this event that you started um, with, you know, your local friends and community. I mean, if they invited me, sure. You know, I've I've tried to go a few times on and off over the years since I moved to LA. If I could make travel schedules line up, and you know, with work and all that, and I would just go up and stay with my family and. Um, Sometimes I like volunteered there like I was a gaming director back in, I don't know, like 2012 or something like that. Um, but, you know, I don't think I could take on like a major staff role, just not living there anymore and, you know, just not having the time. But obviously, if, you know, if they were like, do you want to come up and do something? I'd be like, yeah, of course. We'll be right back. Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now. Edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. 
And get this, while we are based in Anchorage, you don't have to be there to work with us. A lot of the work we do is done remotely. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining at me, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Jordan's interview with Kira Buckland. This is a little bit of a curveball question, different from what we've been asking, but I know that you're a big David Bowie fan. Yes. So what about David Bowie um, inspires you? Why is David Bowie your biggest inspiration? I love that he is, or was, it's still after all this time hard to say was, you know, but um, he was so unique and he just wasn't afraid to be himself. He wasn't afraid to um, redefine a lot of norms like gender norms, fashion, music, all sorts of things. He changed up his sound. He changed up his style. Um, even when his management advised him like, oh, stay with the Ziggy Stardust persona because you're selling a lot of records. He was like, no, I want to do something different. I want to, you know, jump into like changing my style and making something that will fulfill me artistically. And he was just always pushing boundaries and trying new things. And he was very smart. Like he would, um, he would read books all the time. He was into art and paintings and um, just all sorts of things. Like he was actually like a really fascinating person if anyone wants to like look into it more. All right. So would you say that David Bowie definitely like helps you push yourself to do your best and uh, to express yourself in your day-to-day life? Yeah, and, like, he makes me feel like it's okay to be a little weird or out of the norm or whatever because, you know, everybody looks at David Bowie and say, like, oh, that that was somebody revolutionary. And, you know, obviously I can't ever be on that level. But, you know, just to be like, you know what, it's okay if I just kind of do my own thing because a lot of really creative people may maybe were called weird back in the day or what have you, and they just embraced it. Yeah, revolution comes from change, and I think David Bowie is definitely a large uh, component of that. Mm-hmm. And do you have a favorite album or song by David Bowie you would recommend? Yeah, um, I know this is probably a very common answer, but The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars is a classic for a reason. And it's a really great one to check out, especially if someone doesn't know where to start with kind of looking into his discography because there is a lot um and my favorite track on that album is called star and as well as i know um you on your website i'm not sure if it's up to date i believe it is though you say you have two tattoos a joestar birthmark Mm -hmm. which i would assume is on your right shoulder where most of them are and a david bowie black star all right, and where did you get those done in California, or yeah. maybe with the uh, Joe Star birthmark? Was that post Jolene, or was that? No, I've had that for like <laughs> since early 2014, because I'm just like I'm shaping my own destiny, and I'm going to be a Joe Star. <laughs> no, that that's a really cool way to look at it—is uh, manifest it, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like uh, in JoJo's with the stands, you know. Uh, um, talent finds talent and stand users find stand users. Yep. When did it really set in with you that you have made it as a voice actor? 
So the thing that I always say is that success isn't linear and there's no real definition of success because it's all about what it means to someone personally. So for some people, they say, I'll feel like I've made it if I get my first role in an anime. For others, they're like, oh, my first lead role in something like that. For other people, it's, oh, when I'm able to go full time as an actor and not have to have another job. Um, so it's it's really about like kind of what goals you're setting for yourself. And I will tell people, because I know people get in their heads a lot about this, and I write articles on the VAC about it, is that, you know, don't don't get too hung up on the idea that there's going to be some role or some achievement that means you've made it or you're successful, because you're never really going to feel like you're there. Um, even people who are doing voice acting full-time, who have played tons of lead roles, who have been in really prominent stuff, sometimes have moments where they feel like discouraged or, um, you know, even when I finally was able to go full time as a voice actor, which a lot of people see as kind of the marker of success or having made it, I felt, you know, there were a lot of times where I felt really discouraged because I was working and earning a living, but I felt like people didn't really know or care about the work that I did. You know, I was seeing other actors around me get invited to all these conventions and getting all these like social media followers. And it's like, yeah, that stuff doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but it's hard when you're surrounded by it to not feel inferior or this or that. So, you know, even now I have moments where I'm just like, oh, well, I haven't accomplished what this person has. So <laughs> until I do that, I'm not going to be successful or whatever. But it's also important to look back and be like, hey, I've accomplished a lot of cool stuff. Um, one thing that I did at the end of the year that really helped me with that was I challenged myself to make an image of 100 characters that I had voiced over the years. And there was something just about looking at that image and being like, here's 100 characters that have my voice. Like, you know, that kind of helps sink in okay, I've done some cool stuff, even if I'm always going to be striving for more. Yeah, that's very inspiring. And piggybacking off of looking at the success of others, are there others in the industry that specifically inspire you or that maybe you've always wanted to work with? I know, for example, uh, Patrick Seitz is a very big voice actor here in the West. And um, a lot of people, he'd probably be one of the more recognizable voice actors just by name alone. Sure. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people I'm inspired by. Um, I'm even just inspired by like my friends and colleagues, even sometimes people who may not have had as much experience on paper as I do or whatever, just because I'll hear somebody make a really cool acting choice or something like that. And I'll be like, oh, like, I love what this person did in this role. Or especially now, because I'm doing my first big directing job for a video game, which I can't talk about yet, but it'll be super exciting when it comes out. Um, and just directing my peers, like other talent in the industry and hearing the reads that they come up with. It's like really inspiring to me because I'm like, oh, like, you know, I've, I've heard obviously their finished works, but just getting to see somebody's process and kind of how they, they get into character and how they come up with things like that's you can learn a lot. That's why I always tell people too, like if you go to a class where everyone gets a chance to read, you know, some sort of script at the end, like listen and pay attention to other people's reads too, because you'll learn a lot from what they do and from what feedback the instructor gives them. And, you know, it can help you become a better actor. So yeah, I'm inspired by a lot of people. Yeah. Like earlier you said, even if you're a professional industry, 
you'll always have something to learn uh, when taking classes or even from your peers. And I feel that's true in most walks of life, no matter what career you get into. Yeah. With that, I know that you offer uh, on your website, you say you specifically don't like to mentor or offer mentor services, but you do help with demo reels. So maybe you could go into that, how you help. Do you just give them do you give individuals maybe, hey, here's some scripts you should read, or do you help with the editing process, maybe a website buildup? What does that look like? Sure. So um, so the big reason that I don't coach is because I don't feel like I would be the most qualified person. So I'm, I'm not a good coach in that I, I couldn't really be able to listen to somebody and tell them like exactly here's what you need to do for your career or here's what you need improvement on or you know this or that but I do feel like I am a good director so if somebody comes to me with a script already ready and they're like can you direct me and refine my reads to where they need to be that's where I feel like I excel so you know the biggest reason too that I don't coach is because if I'm taking somebody's money for a service especially people who are young and hopeful I want that to be 100% worth the money for them. I don't ever want people to feel like they got taken advantage of or scammed or anything like that. So, you know, I take that very seriously in terms of like, I would never want someone to, you know, say like, come to me for coaching because they they like my work or, or whatever. You know, I feel like, no, it's a, you know, you need to go to somebody reputable who has your best interests in mind and who knows how to guide you through all that. So, um you know, so I stick to my strengths, which is um, which is directing people, um, very similar but adjacent field. And um, basically with the demo reels, people come to me, they usually hire someone to write a script for them, and they have somebody in mind who's going to do the audio mixing because, you know, again, I stick to what I'm good at, and <laughs> audio mixing is not one of those things. And um, I basically, like, we get on a Discord call, and I go through the script with them and give them notes and feedback and they apply that to their read. So for example, the biggest thing that I see, I don't, I don't want to call it a mistake because it's something that everyone gets caught in from time to time, myself included, is that people get very focused on like doing a voice and they think I need to make this character sound like this and that's going to make the character. But in reality, the voice is like such a small part of that. It's all about the emotional intent of the line. So if somebody is just doing a voice, if they're just kind of like performing how they think the line should be said, like that's always transparent to the person listening. So I'm really big about like we need to, you know, really get into this character and find out like, well, why are they saying this, like what's really going through their head and make that a real authentic emotional connection with the listener. All right. And that that's a very in-depth answer. And I, I really appreciate that insight because I feel like that is something, no matter how advanced you are or how new you are to it, that is something that can always be taken into account for voice acting or even physical acting. Absolutely. And even if you're like an established pro who's been doing this for a while, it's like it's so easy sometimes to like go on autopilot, I call it, because you're like, okay, I've played this character type before. I know what to do. And you just sort of perform to where it like sounds, you know, it sounds like you're really getting into character and it's authentic. But it but then sometimes something will come up where, you know, maybe you get like I got called out by a director the other week because they were like, 
you're not connected to this line. And I was like, okay, you're right. <laughs> and, and so I, I did it again and really thought about the character's intent for that line, and it was much better. So, you know, it's something that we all kind of get stuck in from time to time and have to remind ourselves, like, okay, I really need to make this meaningful. And do you feel that generationally that has changed? For example, um, in the community, a lot of people will give grief or maybe make fun of older cartoons or dubbings because there's not a lot of emotional intent and they may sound silly. Do you think that maybe in the newer generation, now that it's an established profession here in the West, that uh, we are now having new generations of voice actors who are willing not willing, but are able and are taught to put in that emotional investment into their voice lines? Well, I think it depends because there's different categories of older media. There's some that it's kind of like, okay, this was kind of campy and over the top, but it's a product of its time. That's just kind of the style of how things were done. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Although maybe, you know, looking at it through a modern lens, people would be like, well, these performances wouldn't really resonate with today's audience. But at the time, people grew up with this and, you know, whatever. Um, but, and then there's also the, the, like for video games, you especially see it in old video games where sometimes they just got like people around the office to do the voices. And yeah, that's the thing that turns into memes because, you know, it wasn't like professional voice performers and sometimes the line deliveries were very awkward. But on the flip side, you do have some more classic shows that were known for amazing performances. Like um, Cowboy Bebop is an example that's always used as like an older anime dub that really stands up to the test of time. Like the performances were really solid. Um, those actors, even if some of them were maybe like newer-ish to the industry at the time, they're all like extremely accomplished in the field now. And um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I think it does benefit people to study because there's some good gems in there. And I had a feeling you would bring up Cowboy Bebop. I feel like that's just a classic in every sense of the word, no matter. Uh, I know some individuals struggle with watching older media or playing older games because of the graphical differences, but I feel like Cowboy Bebop is definitely something to recommend for uh, beginner voice actors because it'll just go to show that, you know, there's always, there's always been uh, capable voice actors out there. And on top of that, do you feel like there's any other media that specifically reaches out to you when it comes to the dubbing? Fully Cooly was another one that was an early inspiration to me. And even the original Canadian dub of Inuyasha, like, um, you know, of course, it has a little bit of that fun, like, campy, over-the-top anime style, but it was a huge inspiration, like, an influence on my early work and learning. So when I got to be the English voice of one of Sashomaru's twin daughters in the spinoff Yashihime. Like that was like really special to me because, you know, I had watched so much of the original Inuyasha dub and be like, this is what I want to do. When you do work, is it mostly like your solo? Do you see any colleagues who might be in the office at the same time as you? And if such, are there any specific uh, voice actors you would like to work with? So, yeah, it's usually just us um, in the booth itself. And then on the other side will be the sound engineer, obviously, the voice director. And sometimes you'll have representatives from the the end client side listening in. So, you know, that might be like a script writer or localization head or um, producer, like somebody like that. So, you know, that can be like a little intimidating 
early on when you start and, you know, you see like people from the Japanese company there, you know, you're like, oh, oh, I hope I do a good job. But, you know, it's just usually it's just kind of to oversee everything to help with, you know, help the director with providing context, that sort of thing. Um, So it can sort of be isolating because you're not really hearing what the other actors in the scene are going to sound like, except sometimes in dubbing, if they recorded before you, you'll hear a little bit of their line in the preview. But um, that's, you know, again, what it kind of comes down to the voice director. And this is a skill that, you know, I'm trying to keep in mind now that I'm voice directing a little bit as well, is um, the director has to kind of make sure, since every actor is recording individually, that when those scenes are all placed together, it's going to sound like those characters are actually having a conversation. I know we've been talking a lot about your professional work, but do you have maybe any fan dubs you did or any um, original work in the early 2000s that you look back on for either like growth reasons or maybe you refuse to look back on those because you feel they're dated or um, don't like live up to your standard? Um, I wouldn't really watch my old stuff at least almost ever because it's embarrassing, you know, but every, you know, once in a blue moon, sometimes if you come across an old audition file or whatever, it can be fun just to see like your growth as an actor after so long. Like one time I even challenged myself to post my old terrible early homemade demo just so I could be like, guys, like you hear how bad this is. Don't beat yourself up because this is where I started. (laughs) You know, Um, I just, I kind of like posted it just to like make everyone else feel better (laughs) about themselves but um you know but there were a lot of really cool things about the flash animation era because that's a lot of what I did you know stuff on newgrounds.com and you know obviously it's there's a lot of like ups and downs of that era but it was it was sometimes fun just like working for independent animators and you know a lot of times they would animate to our voices which is obviously such a change from the dubbing and localization work I usually do now And, um, you know, back then it was before content creation was heavily monetized. So it was just kind of people getting together and collaborating and having fun. And, you know, I'm glad that now there's so many avenues for people to monetize content and get paid. But I think a lot of new voice actors feel very pressured to immediately turn it into a revenue generating business. And they kind of skip over a lot of the whole part about just having fun and making projects with your friends and stuff. Yeah, uh, personally, I believe that's where I started was um, just doing funny impressions and bits with my friend. And I think that's uh, kind of the important part is getting a fondness and uh, experiencing the fun side of things before you try to turn it into business. Yeah, especially because it'll also help people build up their confidence and their skills and, you know, practice with the cold reads because it's very hard to get paid for your work if you don't have any marketable skills yet you know obviously you know and I I say this is just for like um for fun projects for hobby stuff because obviously if it's like a commercial endeavor then everybody should get paid regardless of experience level but you know just because it can be hard and discouraging when paid roles are so competitive um to just kind of don't be afraid to have fun and learn things make your mistakes on the stuff where it's very low stakes and then eventually you can, you know, start transitioning into auditioning for that bigger stuff. Do you have any words of wisdom for those interested in voice acting? Yeah, um, I always um, 
say the same thing, the same type of advice to people, which is just like, um, you know, anything that you can do in terms of learning, um, acting techniques, acting fundamentals, and everybody kind of has different methods and stuff. So if you maybe take one class and the instructor's method doesn't really resonate you with you or doesn't work for you, that's okay. You can take anything from it that you can and just leave the rest, take another class and see if, you know, that one provides something helpful for you and things like that. So, um, you know, don't feel bad if somebody's method just isn't working for you and you need to try something else and just like, you know, be open-minded to learning constantly. You know, a lot of people say like, oh, don't, don't do like imitations and impressions because it doesn't make you a good actor. And it's like, well, yeah, because it's all about the acting when you get down to it, but kind of copying existing characters just as a reference point can be a helpful tool in just like expanding your range and just understanding like, okay, I want to play characters of this archetype. Who's an actor who's working all the time in characters of that archetype? And let me, you know, take a little inspiration from their performance to kind of create that base for a character. And then practice online, go to the voice acting club, make use of the free resources, join the community, um, and, and just do a lot of independent practice and auditions, dive into stuff, even, you know, just like the unpaid castings or whatever, and, and just try to get your footing. All right. Well, that was all very insightful. And um, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your very, very busy schedule to talk with us here at Alaska Team Media Institute and uh, the residents of Alaska. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. That was Abby producer Jordan Kill, speaking with voice actor Kira Buckland. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music is by Kendrick Whiteman, with additional music from Devin Schreckengost. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Dena'ina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like ATME. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Lou Ramirez-Discerns. Thanks for listening.